thank you all for coming out tonight to hear us speak. Uh, the subject I'd like to talk about is uh, the Bush administration's national security policy. I think it's fair to say that over the past year, uh, most students of foreign policy uh, have a pretty profound sense that something fundamental has changed in our foreign policy, that we're just doing business much differently than we did in the past. And at the same time, I think most people, uh, certainly true for me, ha have had a difficult time sort of figuring out exactly what's going on, uh, where we're going. Uh, I think one could argue that it's become a bit more apparent over the past few weeks than it was, uh, let's say, at the beginning of this year. But nevertheless, it's not terribly easy to figure out exactly where the United States is headed. Anyway, I think I have one take on it that makes a lot of sense. And what I'd like to do is lay it out for you. I'd like to lay out for you what I think the Bush administration's national security policy is, and then assess its prospects for success. Now, in laying out the policy, uh, I want to do two things. Uh, one is I want to talk about what they believe are the principal threats to our security. And number two, I want to talk about what they believe are the strategy for dealing with those threats. It's a very simple template. Now, when I talk about the threat environment, I'm going to talk about three kinds of threats, and I'll go into this in more detail. First of all, I want to talk about threats at the level of great power politics. Then I want to talk about threats in terms of nuclear proliferation. There you're talking about rogue states, the axis of evil. And then third, terrorism. That's the template when we talk about the, th the threat environment, great power politics, nuclear proliferation, and terrorism. And then when we talk about the strategies for dealing with those three levels of threat, uh, there are two main tools in, in their arsenal. One is unilateralism and two is big stick diplomacy. And, and I want to unpack how those two strategies, unilateralism and big stick diplomacy, relate to that particular threat environment. And as I said before, after laying out the basic strategy as I see it, uh, what I want to do is talk about its likelihood of success. And my basic argument, just to tip you off, is that it's a strategy designed for failure. And uh, it just can't work uh, as they would like it to. Now let me start by describing uh, the basic security policy, uh, focusing first on the threat environment and starting with great power politics. Uh, key thing to always keep in mind when you talk about great power politics is you're talking about two areas of the world. One is Europe and two is Northeast Asia, because those are the areas outside of the Western Hemisphere where we are located, where there are other great powers. The Bush administration has made it perfectly clear that their goal is to make sure that we remain the most powerful state on the face of the earth. That is to say, their goal is to make sure that we have no peer competitor. This was said loudly and clearly in the national security strategy that was issued last September. Uh, the fact of the matter is we're in great shape on that front. Uh, the two great powers out there that make us somewhat nervous are China and Russia, 
and there's almost no question that neither china or russia at this point in time can give us a run for our money. if we ever got into a fight with them there's no question that they'd come out much more bloodied than we would so that china and russia are in no way, shape or form at this point in time pair competitors. there are a number of other states in the system that have the potential to be even more powerful than china and russia and that includes states like japan germany, france britain but especially germany and japan but for some reason since the nineteen forty s and even since the nineteen ninety s the end of the cold war the japanese and the germans and the europeans more generally have tended to behave like what i call the stepford wives they basically do what we tell them to do they don't cause us any trouble at least until recently and i'll talk more about that as we go along and in terms of a possible peer competitor down the road there's only one state that stands a chance of giving us a run for our money over time and that's china and if china does give us a run for our money it's a long term long time off in the distance so the basic goal i believe of the bush administration regarding great powers is to maintain the status quo to keep things pretty much as they are to not do anything to upset the apple cart now shifting levels and going down and talking about the rogue states or the nuclear proliferators or the axis of evil here we get to iraq iran and north korea and maybe some other candidates somewhere in the distant future libya and syria we've had this nuclear proliferation problem for a long time as you know president clinton was thinking in nineteen ninety four about taking military action against north korea and we've had our eye on iran and iraq for a long time but it's very important to emphasize that the bush administration views the rogue states much differently than the predecessors of the bush administration viewed those particular states in particular they argue that they cannot be contained in the old days we would argue that if a state like iraq got nuclear weapons there really was not much they could do with those nuclear weapons they certainly could not use them for offensive purposes the bush administration does not believe that they talk constantly about how these rogue states can use nuclear weapons to blackmail the international community or to blackmail the world the magic formula for doing that escapes me i often say to people if the united if the soviet union during the cold war with forty thousand plus nuclear weapons couldn't blackmail the united states never even attempted to blackmail the united states and as you all remember the soviet union was run by murderous thugs like joe stalin and nikita khrushchev if those folks with thousands of nuclear weapons never even tried to blackmail us please explain to me how saddam hussein is going to blackmail us they have not yet revealed the magical formula maybe they will but the point is they don't believe containment works and they believe that therefore you have to launch preventive wars against the axis of evil at least that's what they say and that too was clearly articulated in the national security strategy furthermore they believe that there is a great danger of a nuclear handoff to terrorists when you talk about the rogue states in other words they think that the iraqs the north koreas and the irans of the world are not only not containable that they're going to try nuclear blackmail with us they're also very likely to give nuclear materials to al-qaeda that's a fundamentally different way of looking at the rogues 
Now, shifting down to the next level when you talk about terrorism, there the basic view after 9-11 uh, that they have, and I think virtually all of us have, uh, is that this is a deadly serious problem. I think most of us thought, certainly true of me, before 9-11 that al-Qaeda was the gang that couldn't shoot straight. And although they were a danger, they were not a very grave danger, I think 9-11 demonstrated quite clearly that people like me were wrong. They are a grave danger. This is not the gang that couldn't shoot straight. And when you hypothesize a situation where they have weapons of mass destruction, it becomes positively frightful. So terrorism is a significant problem for them, as it is for all of us. But what's very important about how they look at the world is that they see terrorism and the rogue states as being inextricably linked. They see them as being part and parcel of the same problem. And when they talk about winning the war on terrorism, they're not simply talking about going after al-Qaeda. They're talking about going after the rogue states as well as going after al-Qaeda. Now, what is the result of all this in terms of how they think about the threat environment? I think it tells you First of all, that nuclear proliferation and terrorism are of the highest priority and great power politics is not a very important subject for them at this point in time. They're mainly interested in dealing with rogues and dealing with al-Qaeda and other terrorist organizations. And as I said before, they basically want to maintain the status quo as much as possible in Europe and Northeast Asia and not get bogged down in great power politics. Geographically, what this means is that we are shifting our focus away from Europe and Northeast Asia, which is where it really was during the Cold War, and we're shifting it into the Middle East. Not only are we shifting our focus into the Middle East, we're paying lots of attention, as you know, to Central Asia, where of course Afghanistan is, and to Southeast Asia, where there are terrorists associated with Al-Qaeda, if not Al-Qaeda itself. So what's happening is that we're focusing on what we used to call the third world or the developing world. And the main area that we're focusing on is the Middle East. And when people talk about building an American empire, and as you know, many neoconservatives and super hawks in the Bush administration like to talk about building an empire, I believe that that empire will be in the Middle East. So the argument I'm making, and I could lay this out in greater detail if people wanted afterwards, wanted to do it afterwards in the Q&A, is that if you look at the deployment of American forces since the Cold War ended, uh, what you see is that the United States is shifting its attention away from Europe and away from Northeast Asia towards the Middle East. I would add, and we can go into this in the Q&A, that this tendency to focus on the Middle East and to talk about building an empire in the Middle East or reordering the Middle East to suit America's interests is driven also by America's close alliance with Israel. There's no question about it. If you look at the newspapers carefully to include Israeli newspapers, 
and american newspapers over the past week that the israelis are now putting significant pressure on us to go after syria they've been putting significant pressure on us to go after iran and their allies in the united states sometimes referred to as the israeli lobby have their gun sights on syria and iran as well and there's no question that it's not only the assessment of people like president bush and vice president cheney that we have to focus on the middle east because of the connection between rogue states and terrorism and the fact that that threat is located in the middle east it's also the fact that israel and its supporters in the united states want to keep our focus on the middle east for all the obvious reasons now let me shift gears and talk a bit about the two strategies that i think that the bush administration is employing to deal with that particular threat environment as i said before the first strategy is unilateralism this is an administration that does not like multilateralism they do not like to cooperate with other states or involve other states in their enterprises unless they absolutely have to right they prefer to cooperate either in the most superficial ways or if they absolutely have to if they have no choice otherwise they want to stay away from involving other states in their enterprises and the reason is very simple cooperation means com compromise if you get involved with other states you have to pay attention to what they want and the bush administration is not interested in doing that the bush administration wants to do things pretty much by itself this was clearly reflected on september twelfth the day after uh... the attacks on the world trade center and on uh... the pentagon when nato volunteered nato volunteered to invoke article five uh... of the nato treaty which said that all of the members of nato would treat an attack on the united states which just happened the day before as an attack on all the members of nato the europeans were trying to in effect say we want to stand by you and we want to fight with you uh... as you respond to this heinous attack the american response was quite simple we told them thanks but no thanks we plan to fight this war pretty much by ourselves if we need you we'll ask you but otherwise thanks but no thanks to take this a step further it's very important to understand that they dislike institutions intensely uh... they think institutions are very dangerous they think institutions are arenas in which the Lilliputians can tie down Gulliver. As you know, the super hawks in the administration in the fall did not want to go into the United Nations and get Resolution 1441. It was only the doings of Tony Blair and Colin Powell that forced President Bush in there. The hawks, the neoconservatives, thought that that was a fundamental mistake from the beginning because what would happen is you'd get countries like Cameroon and Angola and, God forbid, the French actually putting strictures on what the United States can do. These are people who do not want anybody putting any strictures on the United States. They want the United States free to do whatever it wants. They want to minimize the amount of cooperation we need. And, of course, to go back over to the other side of the chart, what this really means is they want the Europeans and our Asian allies out of the picture as much as possible so that we are free to deal with the rogues and to deal with terrorism. And of course, that problem is inextricably linked pretty much on our own, pretty much 
as we see fit. Now let's talk about the other strategy, which is big stick diplomacy. Bush administration is filled with people who believe that military threats uh, and the occasional use of military force, as we just witnessed in Iraq, uh, has a really bracing effect on the other states in the system. And it does all sorts of wonderful things for the United States. Uh, to put this in IR terms that many of you in the audience have heard both me and Bob talk about before, uh, the Bush administration believes that states in the system bandwagon. They bandwagon with powerful states like the United States. And the problem with the United States in the past is it was run by limp-kneed Democrats like Bill Clinton who were unwilling to use military force, right? Unwilling to threaten states that got in their face. Well, we now have in power the Bush administration and they are willing to use force. They are willing to make serious threats. And what will happen is these threats and these uses of force take place is that allies, fence-sitters, and foes will all jump on the American bandwagon because the last thing they want to do is anger the 1,600-pound gorilla. Right? So what happens in their story is that states don't balance against us. They don't attempt to check us. What they do is they bandwagon with us. And the especially good news, according to the Bush administration, is that the Arab and Islamic world has a very powerful tendency to bandwagon with powerful gorillas. Uh, let me tell you two quick stories on that. One is I debated Charles Krauthammer on National Public Radio, and we were talking about how to wage the war on terrorism. And I was making the argument that what the United States should do is it should go to great lengths to try and win hearts and minds in the Arab and Islamic world. And Charles Krauthammer, who you know is very conservative, very hawkish, after listening to me for a few minutes, could take it no longer, and he finally said, and he's, I'm paraphrasing to some extent his words on national public radio. He said, John, let me tell you how you win hearts and minds in the Arab and Islamic world. You go in there, you grab them by the balls, and you squeeze real hard, and the hearts and minds follow. That's big stick diplomacy. To give you another example, Donald Kagan, the famous historian who teaches at Yale and is a prominent historian, wrote this. People worry about how the Arab street is going to react. Well, I see that the Arab street has gotten very, very quiet since we started using military force. Now, it's very important to understand that not only does the Bush administration believe that big stick diplomacy and bandwagoning logic applies in the Arab and Islamic world, they also believe that it applies to great powers. They believe that the Stepford Wives will remain the Stepford Wives. They believe that the Chinese and the Russians will dare not cross the United States, especially after what they saw in Iraq. So that, that basic bandwagoning logic that attends big stick diplomacy is not only a way for dealing with the Arab and Islamic world and the problems of rogue states and terrorism. It's also a very effective way of neutering the great powers and keeping them out of our face while we deal with those other problems. 
to take this discussion of big stick diplomacy a step further. There's a very high premium placed on preventive war in their scheme. And the reason there's a very high premium placed on preventive war is, again, because they believe you cannot contain rogue states. Remember, they believe that if Saddam had nuclear weapons, he'd be able to blackmail us. So what you have to do is you have to launch a preventive war instead of relying on containment. Two further points that I want to elaborate on, we can talk about in the Q&A, you might want to keep in mind about big stick diplomacy, is that they are very interested in developing sophisticated weaponry. This is the so-called revolution in military affairs. They don't want to rely on lots of ground forces and fighting big wars. They want to be able to swoop down out of the sky at a moment's notice, right, topple a regime and then move on to the next target. Right? They want to be able to put it in Muhammad Ali's terms, float like a butterfly and sting like a bee. And this is why you had this huge fight in the early stages of the war in Iraq between the army generals who said there wasn't enough force on the ground and Donald Rumsfeld and the neoconservatives and the superhawks in the administration who argued that we had plenty of force. What they wanted to do, Rumsfeld et al., is minimize the amount of force because they want to be able to just take right, this highly mobile, highly flexible, fast-moving military, slip into an area where there's trouble, deal with the problem, get out. This brings me to my final point about big stick diplomacy. I do not think they have much appetite for nation building. And the reason they do not like nation building is it ties down our military. And if it ties down our military, we can't float like a butterfly and sting like a bee. And this is the reason that Paul Wolfowitz got into that brouhaha with General Shinsheki, who's the Army Chief of Staff, over the number of forces that would be required to occupy Iraq. Wolfowitz and Secretary Rumsfeld said, no, no, no. Those numbers are absurdly high. And the reason is you bogged down troops in Iraq or in Afghanistan, then you're not free to go to places like Syria and Iran. So basically, the story I'm telling you is that the Bush administration prefers to deal with the proliferation and the terrorism problem, which it sees part and parcel the same piece of cloth by relying very heavily on a unilateralist approach and a big stick diplomacy approach. Now let me briefly in the six or seven minutes I have left assess the likelihood of success and Bob will talk in some detail about these issues uh, and tell you much more. But I want to say something about unilateralism and then focus mainly on big stick diplomacy, especially the subject of bandwagoning. If you're going to try and run the world like the Bush administration is attempting to do, you simply can't do it unilaterally. There are too many problems out there, and you need the cooperation of other states. And therefore, the idea that we're going to be able to go running around the world pretty much doing what we want and not paying any attention to other groups of states is extremely unlikely. Same thing goes with institutions like the United Nations. The United States is going to need the United Nations. Uh, let me give you an example to highlight this. Let's talk about North Korea. The North Koreans actually want to deal with the United States one-on-one. -on -one. 
which you would think we'd be willing to do. We'd be anxious to do, right? Because we like to behave unilaterally. Why do we want to get these crazy allies involved, right? But in fact, what the United States has been calling for is negotiations involving the US, the Chinese, the Russians, the Japanese, and the South Koreans. Furthermore, we've placed a lot of emphasis on kicking this problem into the United Nations. We'd like the United Nations to deal with the problem of North Korea. All of this goes to tell you that there are very important problems out there you can't solve unilaterally. Furthermore, I do believe, and we can talk more about this in the Q&A, that Iraq is eventually going to be a giant mess, and we're going to start reaching out for help from all quarters to help us solve it. And I think, actually, if the administration had been really clever, which it rarely ever is, it would have done the war unilaterally or with the British, and then it would have turned it over to the United Nations, which would have allowed it to float like a butterfly and sting like a bee and move on to the next problem. But anyway, the bottom line is you can't run the world unilaterally. It's too big. We don't have enough forces uh, and not enough military might. Now, let me say a word or two about big stick diplomacy. First of all, I will note to you that in the IR literature, there is virtual unanimity among scholars that states do not bandwagon, that they balance. So anybody who predicates a strategy or a foreign policy on the notion that your allies, your adversaries, and fence-sitters are going to bandwagon is cutting against what the theoretical literature says happens in the vast majority of cases be more specific about this, you've watched how the Stepford Wives have reacted to our unilateralism and big stick diplomacy over the past few months. It does not look to me like they're falling in line behind us, with the notable exception, not of England, but of Tony Blair himself, right? <laughs> it seems to me that the French, the Germans, not to mention the Russians and the Chinese, who are not Stepford wives, uh, have no interest in falling in behind the United States. And I don't know if you've noticed, but the Spanish have made it very clear that they are not going to tolerate us going into Syria or Iran. Uh, so what's going to happen, in my opinion, as we pursue this unilateralist policy with this high premium on big stick diplomacy, is we're going to end up messing up, stirring up a hornet's nest in Europe and in Northeast Asia. We can go into this in more detail in the question and answer period. But the United States, which has a vested interest in keeping the status quo in those two regions, because we're sitting on the top of the dung heap in those areas, right, is actually creating a situation right, where our allies are beginning to think we're a much greater threat than the countries we're threatening. Right? And if that's the case, then these great powers are going to start to think of ways to throw monkey wrenches in the American machinery. And I would argue, for example, it's quite clear that the Russians are helping the Iranians acquire nuclear weapons, and they're doing it for good strategic reasons. Uh, and the more we pursue unilateralism and the more we pursue big stick diplomacy, the more that will be the case. Now, let me talk a little bit about the Middle East uh, or the developing world, the place where we're going to build this empire. The first distinction you want to keep in mind is that between conquest and occupation. There is virtually no question that the United States has the wherewithal to go almost anywhere it wants in the Middle East and topple regimes. We want to finish off Syria? We could probably do it in about two weeks, maybe a week and a half. Right? No question about it. Iran, going to take more time, but we can knock off that government. 
we've got the military might to conquer almost every country on the face of the earth. We are Godzilla, right, up against a bunch of bandits. But that's not the way to think about this. The way to think about this is the dichotomy between conquest and occupation. And to understand that conquest is easy and occupation is not difficult, it's almost impossible. The idea that the United States can conquer and occupy countries in the Middle East to include Iraq for long periods of time and get away with it, to not run into resistance, is to me unthinkable. The fact of the matter is that the most powerful political ideology in the world is nationalism. Nationalism is all about self-determination. The people in these countries like Iraq and Syria and Iran do not want a bunch of Americans coming into their country and running their lives for them. Even if the Americans do good for them, they want to run their own lives. You all know about the history of the 20th century and what happened to those great colonial or great imperial empires. You all remember the British Empire? Where is it now? Dung heap of history. French Empire? Where is it now? Dung heap of history. Dutch Empire? Where is it now? Dung heap of history. Ottoman Empire? Where is it now? Dung heap of history. Austro-Hungarian Empire? Where is it now? Dung heap of history. Russian Empire? Where is it now? Dung heap of history. We even made a short attempt at empire in the early 20th century. Remember we took the Philippines and Cuba? Where's that brief American empire? Dung heap of history. Right? Look at the Israelis. Right? The Israelis are finally wising up to the fact that occupation's not a good idea. Old Charles Krauthammer is wrong. He's wrong. Just look at how the Palestinians are responding to the Israelis. Does it look like the Palestinians are rolling over and playing dead? It sure doesn't look that way to me. And look at what it's doing to the Israelis. Look at what it's doing to Israeli society to occupy the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. So what the Israelis are starting to do now is build a wall and talk about separation. Well, they're doing that at the same time we're now embarking on one of the greatest occupations in modern times. We're going to have a couple hundred thousand people in Iraq running the place. It's going to infuriate the locals, and I don't blame them one bit. But furthermore, we're not only talking about doing Iraq, we're talking about reordering the Middle East. We're talking about democratic dominoes. We're threatening to go into Syria, threatening to go into Iran, turning these places into democracy. First of all, the whole idea of creating democracy at the end of a rifle barrel is not an idea that strikes me as a very smart one. One of the problems, I think, with a lot of these people is they never served in the American military. One of the great advantages of serving in the American military is you understand the limits of that institution. And if there's one thing it's not good at, it's nation building, right? The idea that you're going to take the American Army and the American Marine Corps and send them into Iraq and then into Syria and then into... Saudi Arabia and then the Jordan toppling regimes here, there, and everywhere and going in and turning them into Western-style democracies? The hubris that is involved here is really quite mind-boggling. And again, the historical record should put up a big red flag for most of us, right? Because again, we've seen what happened to all those empires. And again, think about the Israelis. And you know those Israelis, they're a ruthless lot, right? They're willing to use force. It's not like they're a bunch of pussycats who haven't put the heavy hammer 
on the Palestinians. They've done that. But the Palestinians keep coming back for more. So we get heavy-handed with these people in Iraq and in other places. I don't think it's going to work. And for those of you who have any doubt, go back to Vietnam. We got pretty heavy-handed there, too. Nationalism is a very powerful force. Most Americans think democracy is the most powerful force on the face of the earth and pay little attention to nationalism. Big, big mistake. And of course, you understand how these people are going to deal with us, right? They can't fight us on the conventional level, right? We're not going to have World War II or World War III with big armies. There's two ways that these small states can deal with us. One is by acquiring nuclear weapons. That's why the proliferation problem is going to get worse, not better, because right? everybody with a triple-digit IQ understands they better go out and get nuclear weapons to prevent Uncle Sam from swooping down out of the sky and finish him off. That's one of their weapons. Their other weapon is terrorism. Listen to people talk about the, the Palestinians and terrorism. Many people imply that they do this because they're deranged. It's ridiculous. They do it because it's the only arrow they have in their quiver. And we're going to find that out once we start trying to knock off regimes across the region and occupy these places and run them. People are going to be very unhappy, and they're not going to be able to drive their own version of the Abrams tank in the town to deal with us. They're going to come after us with suicide bombers and other forms of terrorism. It's going to be very messy. So what's the bottom line here? The bottom line, and now I'll turn it over to Bob, is number one, with regard to Europe and Northeast Asia, where we had things pretty much running the way we liked them, we're stirring up a hornet's nest. I would remind you that we have governments now in place in South Korea and Germany, the two countries that were the frontline states in the Cold War. Many of you in the audience are too young to remember this. South Korea and Germany were the frontline states. We had huge intermarriage rates between American GIs and German women and South Korean women because that's where we had our forces in the Cold War. These were states that loved us. The South Koreans loved us because we pulled their chestnuts out of the fire in 1950. We saved them from the North Koreans. And given the state of North Korea, you know what a great favor we were doing them, right? The Germans, they greatly appreciated us. We now have governments in both of those states that were elected on an anti-American platform. So things are not looking good in Europe and Northeast Asia. And with regard to proliferation, we're going to make the problem worse there. Because as I said to you before, when you run around the world threatening to swoop down out of the sky, at a moment's notice with your powerful conventional forces, people start to think about ways to deter you. And there's only one way these weak states can deter us, and that's nuclear weapons. And with regard to terrorism, I have news for anybody who thinks the terrorism problem is going to get better while we're occupying and reordering the Middle East to support the interests of Israel in the United States, that this is going to make the terrorism problem better? I just say to myself, to paraphrase, General Tony Zinni of the Marine Corps. People who make that argument are not living on the same planet as me. Thank you.